tennis fans to kickserveradio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring International Tennis Hall of Famer, former world number one Mats Vlander, and Texas Longhorn all-time great, two-time All-American Johnny Levine. Your host of kickserveradio.com is Andy Zoden. So, take it away, AZ. And take it away, I will. Welcome, everybody. Kickserve Radio, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Andy Zoden, your host, joined by the great Mats Vlander. Johnny Levine will be joining us a little bit later in the show. And, Mats, we talk about some of the different rock stars that we have had on the show. And usually when we talk about them, we're referring to that in the figurative sense. We're talking about the Andy Roddicks, the Patrick Rafters, the Stefan Edbergs, and yourself today. And I will let you have the privilege of introducing a true rock star who is a huge tennis fan that I was fortunate enough to meet out in California. So take it away and let them know who our special guest is today. I will let you know in a moment. So I was... 12 years old at the time, and my brother was in the army in Sweden, uh, going to the army for six months, was mandatory. It isn't anymore. Uh, and he came home, and he came home with, with uh, a couple of records. And, uh, and one of them, uh, which I thought was the coolest because of the album cover, was REO Speedwagon. And I was too young to kind of get it, but I was always peeping through the keyhole into my brother's rooms, and what are they listening to? And I could see... And of course, Andy, we have Mr. Kevin Cronin join us today, which is unbelievable. You guys ran into one another in Indian Wells. I don't know why, Andy, you were there and not me. But Kevin, thank you so much for uh, for joining us. We haven't met officially. We will soon. But so nice of you. Great to see you. Thank you so much. Oh, Matt, what a, what a pleasure. Yes, I am. Um... You know, I'm a, a a huge fan of the game of tennis, and uh, and and not unlike basketball, my 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 enthusiasm far outweighs my ability. But I love the game, and uh, and I love to watch great players such as yourself play. And uh, yeah, it, this was meant to be. Andy and I. I mean, it was just, a, it was almost, it was just weird that that I mean, you know, some things in life you just go. I don't know. I, I don't know how, but but I had just watched a a great uh, match at the BNP Paribus in uh, in uh, Palm Springs just a couple of weeks ago, and uh, and, and wait, uh, it was Holger. It was Holger Runa and Stan Wawrinka. Stan Wawrinka, right? So so my wife and I are in the stands, and we're and and I woke up that morning and looked at the schedule, and I saw Stan's name, and I'm like. Wow, I want to I want to go see Stan play because I, I don't know that I I probably seen him play on television or whatever, but to see him and he was playing a young up and coming you know one of the young studs you know nineteen years old six four you know forget about this you know and and I'm like so I'm pulling for Stan you know what I mean and 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 man he how about his backhand just that alone one of the best one handers ever. It's like a ballet dance when he does it. It's just so, it's just gorgeous. I mean, just, and he was all over the court and, you know, he, and, and he had a match point in the second set and he let it slip away and, and the, and the kid won in a tiebreaker and the kid was good too. I like, I, I, what was his name? Rune, right? Holger, Holger Runa. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good player. It seemed like a good, good sport and everything, but Stan came through in the third set and I was just like, 
I just wish I could contact Stan and just tell him how much his victory meant to me. Just not only was it a great match, but just on an emotional level to see, you know, one of one of the old pros kind of school, one of the young up and comers. It was just the way it was meant to be as far as I was concerned. And I just wanted to tell him that. So I'm walking around and there's a million people there. there, there you know, the second week of the tournament. And I'm like, God, how could I? There's got to be a way I can get into the locker room or something. I got to know somebody here, you know. So I'm thinking and we're walking through the crowd and I see this guy with a with the, the name plate around his the badge, you know, yeah. And I just felt like, you know, this looks like a cool dude. So I walked up and <laughs> uh, the straggler. He's a straggler. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's how Andy, that's how Andy and I met, and that's uh, that's how I got here. And I'm I'm happy to be here with with Andy and see him again. And Matt's to uh, be in a conversation with you is uh, it's 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 an honor. I mean, to, for someone who has uh, mastered their craft the way the way you did, and uh, it's it's just uh, it is it's a rare honor. So I'm I'm happy to be here. Well, I wish you could have been a fly on the wall, Kevin, as I told Matt the story that you just told, because I'm standing there minding my own business. And this gentleman who happened to be you uh, walks up and taps me on the shoulder, asking me how he can get a message to Stan Warinka. Actually, the first thing he said, are you are you with the tournament? And I said, well, loosely, you know, I do a little media, but I, I you know, and you said, well, I'm. You know, I'm Kevin Cronin. I'm the lead singer of REO Speedwagon. And I'm like, well, you pretty much had me at Kevin Cronin. So <laughs> once I realized that it was indeed you and that I had seen you in concert back in the early 80s with, um, you know, just the release of High Infidelity and had been a huge fan even before that with uh, You Can Tune a Piano and all the all the, the big hits. And it's like, you know, one of the albums and one of the the series of albums that is kind of the the soundtrack to your younger life, in my case. And uh, I was super excited and hopefully I wasn't too much of just an over the top fanboy, but one thing led to another. And, and, and because of some lucky contacts, we got a hold of Greg Sharko at the ATP and then Greg of course made it happen to get Stan on the phone with you. And then kind of word started to get out. And then all of a sudden Jim Courier's down there to say hello. And, and, and I guess part of the tone of today is the, the concept and Matt's and I talked about it of how, Tennis players and athletes, I think, you know, um, in their quiet time, you know, kind of maybe have this little wish that they could be a rock star and rock stars like yourself, kind of like you've got the two Michael Jordan jerseys over your shoulders and that you're a huge tennis fan. And I knew that when I told you that you were going to do a, a podcast with Matt Spielander, that there would be, you know, obviously some some very mutual respect of the rock star wanting to be the athlete and the athlete kind of wanting to be the rock star. Yeah, there's definitely that. Well, also, if I pan around here, if you see over in the corner there, that is uh, that is probably my most prized. Well, my, I have two prized athletic uh, mementos. One is my uh, basketball signed by the the Showtime Lakers. So it was Kareem, Ooh. Magic, and Worthy, and you know that that oh, boy. Great, that great time. And uh, and then back there in the corner, that's a that's well that that racket has a little story which we can tell later in the podcast but uh yeah i'm uh it's it's an old Mac, uh uh McEnroe, max max ply McEnroe. yeah yeah yes i see the old dunlop it is slightly cracked i i will i'll give you a hint as to how the story was but, <laughs> <laughs> is it possible that it was cracked in a match against Mats Vlander cuz i mean that could happen that could have happened as well i know well you know i was thinking too that 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 i've met 
so many uh, amazing uh, athletes over the years and ever and w- almost without fail like i was i did a uh, a golf a charity golf tournament we used to do a thing called the vh1 fairway to heaven oh wow yeah <laughs> And it, was, it was a great tournament. A lot of pros showed up, a lot of musicians, and they would pair, you know, one musician, one pro in a fivesome with some deep pocket donors, raise a ton of money. And But I was on the putt, practice putting green, and obviously I needed help. And Paul Azinger walked up, introduced himself, and, he's, and he gives me this little putting tip. And it was just like this great – and I putted like like I actually knew what I was doing. But but he, he said and, – and you said it, Andy. He's like, man, he goes, I would trade my golf stroke in a heartbeat wow. to, be, to be the lead singer in Ario Speedwagon. And I'm like, dude – if I could do that, I would do it right now. <laughs> to be able to hit a golf ball, you know. And it's the same thing with guys like you, Matt. It's just when I watch when I watch the 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 pros play, it's just this the just the service motion in and of, I, I was never able to do it. I took lessons until I was blue in the face, but just that fluid service motion with no no hitch, just like Bam! And the ball just takes off. Oh my God! I just, well, you know, Andy. I mean, I was, I was in heaven at the at the BMP watching those, watching those. Yeah, I was trying to think how you, Kevin, must still feel. You're out there performing, so you're trying to get the best out of yourself. People are expecting the best out of you, uh, and I don't have that anymore. So the difference, and I think the reason why we're so uh, in love uh, with with musicians uh, because of. Uh, the the crowd that's there, of course, playing in front of people is is more more fun than not playing in front of people or playing without people. But we as athletes don't have that for that long. In golf, you do. In tennis, you have maybe 10, 15 years. And you don't, yes, I'm still in tennis and my career is media and teaching, but I'm not out there being nervous and the crowd responding to me. That's where I think the, where we're, I am, no, I don't wish to change careers in a way, but I'm so impressed always with with musicians and you guys. Mm-hmm. Are you still feeling that when you go on stage these days? Are you, A, maybe technically as good now or even better? And are you asking as much from the band and from you in the studio or in front of people? Because that's where we we slacked off in, a, in older age as professional tennis players. I've been very fortunate, first of all. You know, I've been able to stay healthy. I, you know, right, right in my, in my thirties, you know, it kind of occurred to me that maybe, um, the party was, was, had been going on a little too long. And, uh, and so, you know, so I got a personal trainer and I kind of, you know, just kind of changed my life around a little bit. I mean, I still have a good time. I'll still have a, have, have a couple glasses of wine or whatever, but you know, so, so I started exercising, started running, uh, started taking tennis lessons. I, I had a tennis court in my backyard and I never, for like the first three years I lived in this house, I never even used it. It was just wow. like sitting there. Uh, and so I kind of started getting into, you know, taking care of my body and not, you know, I was only in my thirties. So I wasn't thinking of it in terms of longevity. I was just thinking about it in terms of survival, about you know, get myself in shape and really given, you know, given everything that I've got to, to the, to the audience, to the recordings, to everything I'm doing. 
And so now, uh, at this point, uh, you know, so that's the mindset I'm in, right? So about, about three years ago, my, uh, my son, uh, the, the, the former basketball player, uh, went to school at USC, just graduated as a vocal performance major. Nice. And so he started telling me about his vocal professor, a guy named Jeffrey Allen. And he's like, Dad, Jeffrey will change your life. You got to work with Jeffrey. Well, one thing led to another. The pandemic hits. Now I see him taking his vocal lessons via Zoom. And I'm like, well, I can do that. You know, I thought, what the heck? You know, I'm still out there doing it. So I might as well see if I can do better. You know, so I started I started working with a vocal coach. And it's kind of like, I think, with tennis. It's like no matter how long you've been playing or no matter how uh, you know, h- how well you play, every, every professional player has got a coach just, just to, to, to help, just to kind of, you know, focus you and to, you know, if something starts going a little haywire to kind of get you back or to, if you start getting older, you need to change. Anyway, so my son was right. And, and I'm glad I listened to him, you know, I mean, how many times have you said to your son, son, I know you might not understand this right now, but, just, I, I love you. I'm telling you this because I love you and I, and, and I think it'll help you. Well, this was my chance to give my son that respect, you know? Wow. And so, and it's been so much to answer your question. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like I'm singing better now than ever in, in my career. Fortunately, I'm healthy so I can still move pretty well. And, you know, I, I had to stop playing tennis. I had to stop running. You know, I had to stop doing the things that were hurting me because my job is to run around on stage. And if I can't do that anymore, well, then then that's not cool. You know, and so to be able to to play and sing and move around, uh, you know, I'm I'm loving it. I think I'm enjoying it more now than ever, actually. All right. Let's go to break real quick because we've got a lot more to cover with REO Speedwagon lead singer Kevin Cronin. We'll have five good minutes with Johnny Levine a little later in the show to take a look at what happened in Miami. But you are listening to KickServeRadio.com, a very special rock and roll edition of KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And we will be right back after this. Don't go away, everybody. Andy Zoden here, and I am joined by Ryan Burberry and Jessica Auerkirk. Ryan is the owner and Jessica is the marketing director for Velocity Tennis. Thank you guys so much for joining us to talk about Velocity Catalyst, the first biodegradable tennis string on the market. Talk a little bit about the brand history, because even though this is the first biodegradable string, it's important that people understand that Velocity has been around a while, a lot of experience there. Velocity has indeed been around as a company for over 30 years. It was um, born in Boulder, Colorado. Something you might not know about Velocity is that our company was actually the original creator of rainbow strings. So that's a, a fun fact. And that product continues to be kind of one of our flagship products to this day. Ryan, when we were talking earlier, you talked about the fact that you really wanted to focus on biodegradable strings, plural. Now, right now, the catalyst I believe is the only one, but it sounds like there's going to be a line of biodegradable strings that could follow in the near future. Exactly. Yeah. So um, there's kind of four major types of strings. So there's polyester, which is what Catalyst is. So we kind of started with that. And then you get into like the synthetic guts and multifilaments. um, And those are a little bit softer. 
a little bit uh, easier on the arm, better for rec players, stuff like that. But those are kind of going to be the next ones that we're going to implement this technology in. And we're doing uh, buy one, get two free sets at the original retail price, just as an introductory offer. So if you try it out, you buy one set and you get two extra ones for either you or your friends. Get three for the price of one. You can't beat that. The website is VelocityTennis.com. This is Velocity, V-E-L-O-C-I-T-I. Thanks for being on with us, you guys. Good luck with everything. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, the REO Speedwagon, Kevin Cronin edition of KickServeRadio.com. And, Matts, we are so excited to be with Kevin. And one of the stories of the songs, that you, one of the songs that you wrote, which is probably my favorite REO tune, is Roll With The Changes. And the story of that song, as I understand it, Kevin, and I'm sure you can correct me if I understood it incorrectly, was that you kind of wrote the song on the way from Illinois, you guys were, you know, originally from Champaign, Illinois, the band was, and in and, and moving out to LA, the song just kind of came to your mind. And it reminds me, in Matt's case of going from, you know, Greenwich, Connecticut out to Sun Valley, Idaho, and there had to be some, some things going through your minds about what a culture change this is about to be. And if memory serves, you even, you even scripted part of that song down on like a lunch paper bag or something. I don't know. This is the story that I heard, but roll with the changes is as good as it gets. Well, that's, that's very kind. Of you. Yeah. I, I, um, I literally pulled into a truck stop. I was driving from, like you say, from Chicago to LA and um, there was a lot going on, you, you know, Matt, you, you know, I mean, you, you've, you've come from Sweden to, to the East coast and now to the, to the beautiful West. And so when you make big, big life changes like that, um, you know, I think it's important to pay attention, not just to um, what the location looks like and how the climate might be different or the architecture or whatever. But, uh, you know, I always feel it's important to pay attention to your emotional reaction to the to the change and and what it means to you because you got to keep up to date so that's kind of i was rolling and things were changing but it was uh it was more like what was going on in my head and and uh i was literally driving down interstate 25 that i started just kind of beating the the dashboard you know playing this rhythm and started just singing keep on rolling keep on rolling wow now I'm steering with my knees oh and I got God. the paper bag from the truck stop. Uh, I'm scribbling. Finally, for the sake of uh, more legible penmanship and highway safety, I finally pulled <laughs> off to the side of the road. And But I finished the verses like right there in the middle of nowhere in, in New Mexico. Yeah, That's as good as it gets. Matt, what about you? Like that cultural role with the changes. How did that kind of affect you and your life because you know from i don't know when you moved from connecticut to sun valley but yeah no no for sure i moved to um i actually moved from from sweden to monte carlo because Uh of the tax situation in monte carlo (laughs) when i was 19 years old i remember the day my dad said that son you got to move out of sweden because i was paying about 80 percent tax in sweden in those days uh and not making that much money even though i just won the french open as a 17 year old and he said you got to go because you never know how long your career is going to last and how long you're going to be making money but i do uh, agree 100 percent because i went to monte carlo for 
for a couple of years. Then I met my wife in New York City uh, at the U.S. Open in 1985. I am now 21 years old. Then I moved to New York City, to Manhattan. But I still, so yeah, I, I, I agree with you, Kevin, 100%. You had to roll with the emotional changes in your life. But the constant was always that get back on the court and give it all in practice. And of course, please, can I play in front of people? Because that's when when I feel like I'm challenging myself. And that's when I get those nerves that you get when you fall in love for the first time or when I met my wife in New York. And I think because my life was changing, the only thing that wasn't changing was what I was doing on a tennis court. But my mind became much broader when I moved to America. And of course, like, you know, the, the likes of you, Kevin, you guys were such heroes for us Europeans, the American pop rock singer and guitar player and rock bands. I mean, that's basically, it's not necessarily what I wanted to do, but it took our mind into becoming a, a citizen of the world, like a global mindset compared to just little Sweden. So Kevin, with you guys, I always found the differences in tennis in the 80s. It was not a popularity sport. Like I could care less if any, if I'm popular or not. I'm winning or not winning. That's it. I'm not here to sell rackets or shoes or clothing line or I'm not even here to make money. I'm just not. I'm here to not lose tennis matches. For you guys, that balance act, I, I always was interested in because obviously you play your music. You write the music that you feel that you want to play. But it also has to sell because unless you want to pay for your recording studios yourself, <laughs> uh, which I'm sure you've done too, it still has to sell for you. For us, it doesn't have to sell. It just have to win matches. If I win matches, the, pri- the check is bigger. So for wow. you, you guys, bal- are you still balancing that or did you never care about the commercial side of it? And just this is what I want to play. This is what I want to say. Uh, this is my creative mind. This is me. Forget what people think about it. How did you deal with that? Well, you know, I think, Matt, I think it's a it's a balancing act. You know, when 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 I started, you know, I, I've been playing in bands since I was 12 years old. And, you know, I saw the Beatles on TV and I was I just I was like, that's that's what I want to do. And it and it wasn't really a thought of a way of making money. It was a way of um, that was I mean, the the guitar has been. My best friend for my, I, I, I remember my dad, I wanted to play drums and my dad said, you know, a guitar, you can take it with you anywhere you go. And I was like, I can still beat on it and I can take it with me anywhere I go. It's like, all right. And it's been with me ever since, you know. And like, take it outside, Kevin. Kevin, would you take that outside? Please? <laughs> yeah, exactly. outside. Yeah. There, was that. there was definitely that. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's a balance. And, you know, for me, I've got to, you know, I, I write songs that, that are, that come from some place, some emotional place that, that I don't quite understand. I just know that if I sit down with the guitar and start playing before long, there's something starts happening, you know, and depending on what's going on in my life, if, if there's something, if some emotion gets kind of attached to those chords and then the melody starts coming, then, then, 
that's what I call the, 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 the creative burst and the, the creative burst. It's, it's fleeting. You know, it, it, you know, I usually try to write as much as I can in that moment. And I just like, I don't stop for anything, man. I'm just like, I'm like, I'm intense. I'm writing, I'm playing until I'm about to pass out. And then it, then it passes. And then from that point forward, then it becomes the craft. Now it becomes, if this is something that I feel is worth sharing, then I want to do whatever I can to produce it in a way that helps the, the listener to, to, to get inside of it with me. I, I, I want the listener to, to come on this journey with me. So I have to, I have to help them. I have to open the door for them. I have to maybe help them in, you know? So I think that's where the balance is. And I think, you know, there's a tendency in some type of situations where that part becomes the most important part and the actual soul and, and the emotion of the song becomes secondary. And Matt's just like you, let's say you're giving a lesson and a, a new student comes on. You can tell in what 30 seconds, whether, whether this is going to go anywhere or not. You could use, I can spot one of those kind of songs a mile away. And I'm, I'm sure it's similar with, with, uh, with tennis. Absolutely. Um, Kevin, let me let me ask you this, because when when we talk, when people talk about mats, it's usually there's at some point the conversation veers off into, you know, he was a, a Borg disciple and that Borg was a big influence. And he was a you know, Borg was a big influence on on all of us from the generation that he and I grew up in. But in particular, Matt's kind of came up as the next Borg. So right. Borg was Beatles, basically. Right. There you go. So you yeah. mentioned the Beatles. Kevin, but who else, as you started to get older, you know, I, I, I watched the interview and I kind of think Matt's that, that this interview today is sort of our answer to the Howard Stern interview with Bruce Springsteen, us getting, you know, an opportunity to talk to Kevin like this, which as we both know, is one of the great interviews that, that Stern ever did was with Springsteen, but Springsteen talked a lot about working with David Bowie and different people and some of the really cool stories that you would have never known about who was somebody out there that you idolized in rock that maybe you got an opportunity to work more closely with than we would have ever known otherwise. Well, you know, second to the Beatles uh, was Crosby, Stills and Nash for me. Okay. The, you know, I heard that first uh, Crosby, Stills and Nash album. I put the needle down. Uh, we were playing albums at the time at, on Sweet Judy Blue Eyes. And I could not, I literally, I could not believe what I just heard. I went back, I picked up the needle. and This is 12 times. You know, I, I, it took me 12 times listening to it before I was finally like, Okay, I've digested this amazing song. So this is when I was, you know, 19, 20 years, no, probably about 18 years old, something like that. Well, two weeks ago, I played a show in uh, a, 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 a private event, not a private event, it was a public free show that, that I put on in Las Vegas. And Stephen Stills was one of the others that they had Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top. They had Vince Gill, the amazing Vince Gill. Wow. Stephen Stills and myself, each singing three or four songs in front oh. of an amazing band. And I got to sing a duet with Stephen. Oh. It was right after David, you know, David Crosby had recently way which was so sad he was a neighbor and a friend and uh but i got to sing a duet with steven on almost cut my hair so you know so you know and a, a few years ago i actually was able to i wrote a song with steven stills that ended up on a crosby stills and nash album so that was you know in my wildest dreams 
did I ever think in the world that I would end up meeting Stephen Stills, much less, you know, writing a song with him, performing on stage with him. I mean, it's my, my little journey with Stephen Stills has been uh, quite, quite remarkable. But, you know, my daughter says my daughter talks about manifesting and, you know, and it's kind of a new age thing where you think about something that you want to accomplish and then that energy makes it happen. And that's fine. But I didn't know what that was. But from the time I was about 17, 18 years old, there must have been a part of my brain that was just, you know, I wasn't consciously like following Stephen Stills around or something, but somehow this happened. I, was that a coincidence? I, I don't know. I, I'm not so sure, you know. I'm, I'm going to give you the next question, Matt, but before I do, Stephen Stills is actually quite a, an addicted tennis player as well. <laughs> and one of my good friends here in Denver was his pro in L.A., and he went from being his pro in L.A. to teaching him tennis on the road to being his road manager. So I'm kind of hoping that one of these days, you know, Kevin, I'm out there on tour making phone calls on your behalf and, you know, running the show for Ari. I'm just just planting that seed right now. <laughs> so if you want to, when you talk to Steven, you should set up some tennis with him. I'm sure he'd love it. Yeah, I will. It's not, it doesn't exactly sound like the first time I met my idol, uh, Kevin, which was Jimmy Connors of all players. So I, I'm coming to the French Open in 1982, and I get in on Sunday morning. i just driven from Rome, Italy, from playing the Italian Open. It was an airline strike, and I get into the hotel, and I go to my coach's room. Literally, I slept in the, in the rental car in the back. My coach drove because I didn't have a driver's license at 17. So we call, and they say, you got to practice court with Jimmy Connors. I'm right. He said, you're practicing with Jimmy Connors. I'm like, what? Why? Why does Jimmy Connors want to play with me? This is where the first year Borg didn't play the French Open after having won six out of eight times. This is 1982, so he refused to play. So I practiced with Jimmy Connors, and about 45 minutes into it, I'm winning. I'm beating him by a little bit. And he said something to me about my mom. And my English wasn't that good at that time. And I was like, oh, my God, Coach, did you hear what he said? And he said, yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. Just play. I'm like, Jimmy Connors just called me that? I can't keep playing. So he was trying to, A, be so competitive, keep me down. I think Jimmy would have never done that, would have never wanted to practice with me, would have never called me those names unless he was threatened, uh, unless he was um, also uh, enthusiastic about me as a player and as a as a professional athlete and about a future opponent. So I think the challenge brought the best out of Jimmy or the worst, which is when he was at his best. And I, saw, I learned so much from that day. And I then went on to win the French Open for the following two weeks as, as a 17-year-old. And I would say I grew up in those two weeks because Jimmy Connors did that to me the day before. Uh, and I think we recognized, he recognized this guy has it. And I guess in music, the times that I've, because I play a little bit of guitar, Kevin, I'm horrible. I, I got I, I to gotta just rewind just one second, Matt, because I was aware that of your amazing victory at the French Open at the age of 17, which is just, that's mind blowing. But what I wasn't aware of was that you practiced with Jimmy Connors before that victory. And I'm wondering, my question for you is, Looking back on it, how big was that practice session with Jimmy Connors emotionally? For I mean, physically, 
you know, you've got to, you know, if you're going to win the French Open at 17, you've got the, the technique, you've got the, you've got the, the athletic ability, you've got, but how big was that practice uh, session with Jimmy Connors as far as getting you ready for the intensity of emotions? I'm just curious how, how, how big a part that played for you. I mean, huge. That's what I mean. It was, I realized for the first, because I played the juniors and I've just turned pro, and but the juniors are the juniors. Suddenly you're playing against men that are trying to make a living and they are going to uh, step all over you. Uh, like Jimmy Connors did that day, like Ivan Lendl uh, is very famously, he's going to hit you in the chest with tennis balls. If that's the right play, he's going for your forehead when you're at the net. <laughs> and I think what I realized is that this is what, this is what these guys are going to do to me. So I got prepared for that attitude that it's very personal. In fact, it's only personal. It's me or you, and I'm not going home because I got bills to pay. So I'm going to have to take it out on you you little shit 17-year-old who tries to play like Borg. And there is no one watching. Senna Court, Philippe Chatrier, and there's no one on the Sunday except him, his buddy, because he didn't have a coach, me and my coach. And he's treating it like the most important situation or practice session ever, so important that he calls me these names, which I wasn't 18, so it was really unfair in a way because right. I've only heard these phrases on records like yours, maybe, Uh, is listening to what you guys were saying on record but so what i realized was that these guys are men they're going to put me so very quick story in the semis kevin i faced jose luis clerk of argentina and i had match points to go to the finals of the french open and there's a bad call that jose luis clerk hits a winner hits the line and the chair umpire was so in love with the Swedish tennis stars like Bjorn Borg. Here I am. So he doesn't even go down and look at the mark. He calls it out. Out. Game, set, and match. Villander. Je, set, and match. Monsieur Villander. And I was like, what are you talking about? This ball is on the line. Like, I can't win like that. So I go up to the umpire and I said, in those days, you replayed the point. Jose Luis Clark was just losing it. And when he heard me say that, it was like he couldn't he couldn't believe that I wanted to replay the point. I was in the finals. So I walk off the court. I win the next point because Chris like can't play. I get into the locker room. My two brothers, and this is the one brother that brought home uh, this record for when he was in the Army. Uh, in 1976, he said, uh, of you guys. So he was there, and he came up to me, and he said, Mats, we have driven – 24 hours from Sweden to go and watch you play the semis of the French Open. And you're giving it away? <laughs> this is not the juniors. These are the men. They don't give a shit about who you are. They're going to kick your butt. So that experience as well, I'm like, oh, my God. Everything just – I wasn't a good player. But I think emotionally, I just took a massive step into the professionalism and being, okay, you better toughen up, man. You got the game. So anytime from that on – Throw me in a situation where the, my tennis is the same as yours. I am thinking I'm going to find a plan to make you worse and most probably beat you in the end because I'm not going to get tired. But the confidence that I got from the emotional stress from playing these guys like Jimmy Conn, that's when, and I think that's your question. Yeah. I, I'm not afraid anymore. I'm afraid now, but I'm not afraid in those days. It doesn't matter. Put me in any situation. And I don't know where that came from, if it's a quality of of your your uh, pursuit of your passion or, or I hate losing or I love winning. It surely wasn't the money. It wasn't the groupies. Uh, it was the crowd, but um, 
and then you lose it. Let's let's hold that thought and go to break real quick. And by the way, Kevin, don't believe a word he says when he says that he wasn't a good player. He won the French Open for crying out loud. In my world, in my world. Yeah, in his world. <laughs> All right, more to get to with the great Kevin Cronin, the great Mats Vlander, and 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 me. Andy Zoden, and you're listening to KickstartRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. What am I doing here is the question that everybody's asking. We'll be right back after this. Don't go away. Hi, guys. Sarah Z here with a KickServe QuickServe with my friend and nutrition guru, Courtney Ward with BodyFuse. Courtney, As we ladies start to get, oh, shall I say, more advanced or more experienced in our life, how about just body weight and body maintenance? That for me is becoming, I I think, tougher by the day. Boy, you're not alone. And along with our sports performance line, BodyFuse also offers a full weight loss line. And we have a fantastic product called Purify, which kickstarts your weight loss. It's a GI detox. It's a water cut as well. So it's really great for bloating, irregularity, um, and people love it to kickstart a weight loss program. And then with that, we couple a product called Blackwall Shredded, kind of cool name. It's a daytime thermogenic. Um, and also has a nootropic in it. It's not super high stimulant, but it's just a, a good mental focus. And it just basically kickstarts your metabolic rate. So that's a daytime thermogenic. We also offer a nighttime thermogenic called Midnight Burn. And this has melatonin and GABA as well as a thermogenic. So it kind of continues that metabolic rate uh, bump, if you will. So that these three products are, are sort of like the magic trinity. I don't want to say magic pills because there's no such thing. But Midnight Burn at Night, Blackwell Shredded in the Day, uh, and then Purify to kind of kickstart your system and clean out your GI tracts. And in addition, Purify, along with the detox, it allows us to start absorbing nutrients a little bit more efficiently as well. So those three products are just a fantastic trio and very, very popular. Fantastic. And one more time, Body Fuse. BodyFuseUSA.com. Well, I'm Sarah Z. She's Courtney with Body Fuse. And now back to more tennis talk with the Kickserve Radio Boys. Okay, guys, as promised, Johnny Levine joins me now. We're going to do five quick minutes on the Miami Open. Johnny, it was the the back end of the Sunshine Double, and we thought a couple of players might actually bag the double, those being Carlos Alcaraz and Elena Rybakina. Neither one of them did. Did you think that that double not happening on either side of the men's or women's games was good or bad for tennis right now? Here's Johnny. Well, I think it's always good, Andy, to have the parity in the tennis and, uh, and not have total domination. We did expect uh, Alcaraz to win the Sunshine Double, but um, he was he was uh, outplayed by Sinner, and he looked a little bit hurt. Uh, but what what an incredible match! And you got to give all the credit to Sinner to get through that one. And they talk about this budding rivalry between Alcaraz and Sinner, and it just seems like Sinner's got to win a few if it's going to be truly considered a rivalry. Well, he beat him at Wimbledon last year, and now he beats him on the back end of the Sunshine Double after having lost to him in that very same semifinal round 
uh, at Indian Wells in straight sets, and he comes back and turns the table. So maybe this is the men's rivalry of the future, although I know that come the clay court season, Novak Djokovic will certainly have a lot to say about that. What were some of the things that you enjoyed about the Miami tournament? There were certainly some huge upsets and some great matches, but I know there were a couple of things that stuck out that you really liked seeing. Yeah, Andy, I, I, I was so happy to see Christopher Eubanks come through the qualifying and then getting all the way to the quarterfinals in his biggest, biggest career, uh, best tournament. And, and it couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. What a, what a great result for Chris Eubanks. Easy kid to root for, to your point, Johnny. And then you look over on the women's side and uh, – and you see Rabakina make it to the final and on the back end of how hard she had to work to win at Indian Wells. And then it was a not an easy road to the final. But then you see her lose to Petra Kvitova. So she's easy to root for, too. She's got a great smile and a great demeanor. And I think she and Rabakina both speak very well of the women's game at this time. Yeah, I mean, two great champions. And Rabakina uh, was favored to win that match. And they had just a an incredible tiebreaker in the first set, 16-14. And it it appeared, and it was true, that the victor of that tiebreaker was going to be the heavy favorite. And that is what happened in the end. And so for her to get this title, um, you know, is a big, big uh, win for her. Uh, She hasn't had a title of this magnitude for some time. And so it was just uh, great to see her come through with the upset. It was her 13th. Uh, attempt at it, her 13th trip to Miami. On the women's double side, Johnny, you see a couple of Americans that are trying to make their way up into the, you know, the upper echelon of the singles rankings, Coco Goff and Jesse Pagula. And and they're getting there. Pagula, I believe, lost in the semifinals and, and Goff a little bit earlier in the tournament got upset by Potapova, I believe. But then they team to win the doubles. And do you think that at this point in their young careers, that that sticking around and getting those t- doubles titles will kind of keep the coffers full with regard to their confidence level. It just seems like it's a, a healthy way to keep their tennis uh, in the right frame of mind. Yeah, I agree, Andy. I mean, they 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 are uh, forming to be a, a a great team, and they they I believe they finaled the French Open, and they've had some really consistent results. And I think it is good for their for their singles to play the doubles. It helps with their serve and their volley game and 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 they formed a great team johnny before we go you played over across the pond in that french open had a good result in your last year on tour getting to the quarterfinals of the doubles yourself on that terabatu that red dirt over there and with what we've seen from the americans and i you know obviously speak of taylor fritz francis tfo tommy paul the rest of the of the american contingency uh and we talked with the craft raggets guys about it in arizona about american tennis being back is American tennis back enough to be able to have one of these guys make a dent into that French Open draw, or are they back, but the French Open may be another story? Yeah, I think the French is going to be tough for the Americans. I I mean, the, the, the favorites, the ones that I think could actually do well are going to be Tommy Paul and Francis Tiafo. I mean, Tiafo, I think, uh, you know, hasn't had the huge results on, on clay, but I think he is playing with such confidence and he's serving big and he, he's been very, very good on the baseline with very few errors. I think he could really do well there. Tommy Paul, having won the French Open Juniors, knows how to play on that surface. Um, and so he could do well too. But 
I have to say, Andy, these Europeans and and these guys are so tough on that red dirt that I, I think the Americans have their work cut out for them. All right. He's Johnny. Let's get back to more with Matt Svelander and Kevin Cronin. Thanks, buddy. We will uh, be talking more during the clay court season, uh, of which you know plenty. And uh, now let's get back to our, our rock star guest, Kevin Cronin of REO Speedwagon. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com. We just missed this this great, during the break, we had a great conversation. There's no way you can, it's gone. It's I've gone never let anybody oh. interrupt me in the middle of an intro like that, but it's Kevin Cronin, so how can That's I not? No, it's fine. It's fine. No, I love it. I mean, if it's going to be anybody, it's going to be you. I had Roger Federer ridicule me in a press conference uh, at Indian Wells, and now this. I feel like my life oh, is just getting oh, better as the days go on. But we are, KickServeRadio.com, we are joined by the great Kevin Cronin. And I want to ask you, Kevin, you know, um, you, you talked about Eric Corita when we were in, uh, when we were in Palm Springs, which was funny because I spent time with Eric the next several days after that. And you told the story of, you know, one of your great, um, I don't know if I would necessarily call it an accomplishment because I don't know if you accomplished returning Eric's serve or not, but I know that you were at least on the other end of it. What was that? What was the result of that? If I may ask. I would call it more of a dubious distinction. Okay. I think you'd file it there. But uh, so, as I mentioned earlier, we had this, we had a beautiful court in our, in our backyard for years. And, uh, uh, and Eric was in town for the, to play the LA Open, which right. was be, before the BNP was the LA Open that they used to play it at uh, UCLA. So he was a Chicago boy and he came out to my court to practice. And I, I can't remember who he was hitting with, but, um, he was a big dude, right? I mean, what was Andy? Like six five, like six five, six six, and yeah. every bit of two fifty, two sixty. Yeah, he was a linebacker, basically. Yes. So, and at that time, and this was nineteen eighty five ish, eighty six, maybe he was reportedly uh, the, had the fastest serve in tennis. And I remember it was it was they clocked it at one forty six, and I'm like, wow. And the guy's a big dude, so so I'm thinking. And I'm, and I'm, I've been taking a few tennis lessons now. So I'm just like, I just said, Eric, would you mind? Could I just receive <laughs> one of your serves just to see what it feels like? Right. And he's like, okay. So I, I'm there. I'm in the deuce court. I'm, I'm well behind the, the, the baseline because I'm, I'm expecting something horrible to happen. He tosses the ball. He hits it. And when he hit it, I, I sat and watched as he knocked the air out of the ball. The, the ball became flat. It went from being round to being a pancake. And now this, this disc, basically, is coming toward me. It's like a hockey puck. It was like a hockey puck. It, time stood still. It happened so fast. And as I said to Andy when we were at the BMP, my, my all I, I couldn't even think. It was just a, a gut reaction. I crouched down and covered my head with my hands. I felt like such an idiot, but I, I, I didn't have time to do anything else. It was amazing. So, yeah, I, Matt, you can vouch for being on the other end of that serve at one time or another, I'm sure. I can, yes, yes. I played Eric. Uh, I don't know Eric, yeah. No, unbelievably good hands and massive serve. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I, he he had one of the best, not just the hardest, but he had an unbelievable kick serve as well. He could 
so much topspin on it with uh, the uh, Prince Graphite that he played with in, in those days. Great hands. But you know what it sounds like, Kevin? Um, I did stupidly enough in the middle of my tennis career as a 26-year-old. 20, I uh, recorded a five-song CD <laughs> in Los Angeles that we sold in Sweden. And I, and I had uh, some friends that were part of some of the best musicians in Sweden and I, uh, that I played some tennis with said, I want to go on tour in Sweden. I just want to feel like what it's A, to have a beer sponsor. Yeah, honestly, to have a tour bus and to just hang with you. So anyway, so we would go on this 21-day tour in a month. And of course, we arrive at these little places. Sometimes we have 10 people watching. Sometimes it'd be 200 people. And um, the funny thing is that we were... At night, they would sing sort of five, six songs, and then I would come on and sing the five songs, play acoustic guitar that we that we recorded and sold uh, as a record in Sweden. And sometimes I try to get onto the sound check, and the and the lead guitar is like, whoa, 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 Matt's like, what, what what are you doing here? It's like, well, it's sound check, no, 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 hold on, hold on. Sound check is when we play. That's when we play as a band. Okay, when you come on at night and you sing in front of a bunch of drunk people in Sweden, that we can do that. That's completely different, but that's not really music. Like sound check, you don't you can stand here, but don't do anything. Don't play. We'll make sure your guitar is in tune and we make sure the sound is like don't stop playing. And basically that's like you re- returning Karita serve. The level <laughs> is so different, and that's what I was so blown away. Every second, every beat, every note, just so tight that, yes, I turned everything down, of course. And I try to remember the, the words of the song, but it was the same. I felt so out of place. Uh, and I realized it wasn't the music that I was interested in. Uh, it was, at that time, the lifestyle, which obviously you uh, you gave up some point at the right time, it seems, Kevin. But, um, yeah, it only lasted 21 days for me. But, wow, <laughs> that was so cool to be part of trying to return Karita serve in the sound check, realizing, oh, my God, these guys, okay, get out of here, Matt. You're not ever going to be a musician, and I'm not. Well, I, I, I'll tell you another quick story. We Back in the 80s, we, we were kind of tight with the L.A. Lakers organization, and they would, they, from time to time, there would be tennis uh, exhibition matches at the Forum. And they would, and, and they played two, play two sets, and then in the, in the, uh, in between sets, they they trot out some "quote unquote" celebrity doubles players, right? So it was it was McEnroe and Connors. That was the exhibition, and and so and I was to say that I was shitting bricks. <laughs> Understand? I, I was sitting I was sitting backstage in the lounge area with a with a a, a, a monitor in front of me watching. Connors and McEnroe and 18,000 people just loving every point. And of course they were putting on a show. They were getting mad and doing the whole thing, you know, and it occurred to me that I'm going to go out there and, and I'm going to make an, it's like, put it this way. I literally, I was so scared that when I, that at the last minute, when I left my house, I brought a guitar with me and I thought to myself, I'm going to bring this guitar out in the court and set it down next to the net just in case if all else fails. <laughs> so, yeah, so talk about, so, so we play doubles. Matt, I, I had a dream the night before that, that my body was made of cement and I couldn't move my arms and I couldn't move my legs. And that dream came true. Came true. <laughs> well, I'm sure, Kevin, that 
Johnny Mac was probably <laughs> shitting those very same bricks if he ever got an opportunity to jam with you on stage. But it sounds like you guys are pretty friendly and maybe that's happened before. Um, Matt, you talk about, you know, Kevin having given up that lifestyle, you as well, myself as well. And it probably isn't a coincidence that we all married amazing women, your beautiful wife, Lisa, Kevin, your beautiful wife, Sonia, and I've done pretty well with my beautiful wife, Sarah. So I think it's always it's always smart for guys to to marry women that are that are much better character and much smarter than themselves. I think we can all three say we qualify for that. But, you know, we, we talked about a, a bigger than life situation with returning Eric Carita to serve. And now I want to ask you about another bigger than life situation that I don't know if this is a project that's complete, but it sounds like in the near future, we're going to be hearing a, a duet with Kevin Cronin and Dolly Parton. That, you know, I, I can't confirm or okay. deny that specifically at this point, but, uh, but uh, there's uh, there there is a there's a there's a, a fair chance that 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 okay. will happen. Uh, I and I couldn't be I couldn't be happier about it. Dolly is, uh, you know, we our musical connection goes back to 1980 when she recorded uh, a version of "Time for Me to Fly," really? one of my songs. Okay, and she did it as a country hoedown. You know, I've been around for you, been up and down for you, and I just. <laughs> And it was awesome. I heard it and I was just like, this, this is amazing. So, you know, just over the years, you know, uh, so yeah, long story short, um, we, she, well, you know, she got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yes. And she was, she was ready to turn it down because she just felt like she didn't belong in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. She's a country star, right? Wow. And, but everyone who she asked about it said, Dolly, you are rock and roll. You know, it doesn't matter if you're country or whatever, you're rock and roll. Just like, just like a lot of the rappers, people right. say, Oh, those, he's a rapper. He's not right. No, he's rock. Rock and roll is a, is a state of mind. You know, it's, a, it's a certain, a certain fearlessness, a certain, uh, you know, refuse to lose mentality, which as a professional tennis player, you, you gotta be rocking. You, you gotta have a little rock and roll in you, you know, to just to go out there and think, I'm going to beat that guy. I'm walking out there with Yvonne Lendl and I'm going to beat that guy. And it's like, what, what makes you think you can do that? What, what makes me think that I can walk out on stage at, you know, Soldier Field in Chicago with a hundred thousand people there and expect that they're going to listen to my little songs that I wrote. You know what I mean? It's, you gotta be crazy. You gotta be a little bit fricking nuts. But, but anyway, Dolly has got this, she's got this sweetness and she's kind of, you know, she's rock and roll. She's, you know, she, she's great. And, uh, I'm, it looks like there's going to be a, 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 a duet with, with me on that album. And I sure hope that it, that it comes to pass. You can never, you never know though, because with, in, in these things, a lot of times, Artists will record a certain amount of songs, but Dolly is like reaching out. Last I heard, I think after our session, she went and who did she sing with? Oh my God. Oh, Elton John. Hello. You know, oh, so I'm like, and then, and then I heard that they were contacting Paul McCartney and Mick Jagger. And I'm like, wow. Okay. Well, I hope I don't. I hope I don't fall too far down the the, the ladder here. But but, uh, but I'm I think I'm I'm cautiously optimistic and, and excited about it for sure. It's unbelievably fascinating to hear you talk. But obviously you went to the so you go to the BNP Paribas. So you 
Would you say that you know as much about Carlos Alcaraz and Yannick Sinner uh, and today's tennis game as you did, and I'm not saying that you maybe did or didn't know, that you did in the 80s. This is when you were pushing the envelope. This is when you sort of were sort of at your best or whatever you would call it as a musician. So when I was at my best in tennis, I was really following the world of music. Like I know every band that played in the 80s, but as soon as I dropped off my intensity level as a tennis player that usually comes with starting to lose and play on the outside courts instead of center court and then not play on the tennis channel they're not even showing your matches and suddenly i don't know and i don't know nearly any artist in the last 20 years i would never put them on i still put on the guys from the 70s and the 80s because somehow when i listened to them back then there was an intensity that i try to understand and learn how to speak english blah, blah. so for you guys, how do you keep that up? Because you guys have been going for 50 years. That's what we are so impressed by you guys because of the, it looks like you're having so much fun and being a perfectionist because you have to be, you're still pushing the envelope. Uh, technically, I would think. Well, you know, back in the, in the eighties, I knew everybody. I, I knew all the top players in tennis and, and I watched, you know, I watched it. I, I, you know, we, we met different people along the road. People would come to a show, this and that. And, and I, I saw Carlos Alcarez in that, in the U.S. Open. I, I just happened to have some, some time. I think we were on tour. So on tour, I have more time because we can nowadays with the tour buses, with, with satellite television, we can watch live sporting events as we're rolling down the road. So if there's a tennis tournament on when we're on tour, I see, a lot more than if I'm home and I'm, you know, running around the house. So I'm like you, Matt. I don't know a lot of the younger tennis players coming up. I don't know a lot of the young bands coming up. I think it's when you're younger, you just have, you're just more thirsty to know everything that's going on. You know, I want to know, you know, who the other bands are playing. I want to know who the, who's playing tennis, who's playing, you know, everything. I just, I, I just wanted to be a, a part of the whole energy that would that, that that was happening and whatever that time is whether you know for us it was a certain time but for you know for for my kids it's going to be a different time and for my dad it was a different time and so i think we're all we all have that connection to those to, to that era and i think to you know to answer an earlier question of yours matt's i think that has something to do with why we're still around. I mean, we, we, you know, we've kept our standards high. We work hard and all that, but our music, just because it was so popular for a, for a number of years there that it just got into people's bloodstream, you know, and, and people want to see, I think they want to see if we can still do it. You know, it's almost like you, you go to the Indy 500 to see who crashes. You know, they, they you, know, you go to a rock show and it's like, all right, I, I think, is this guy going to be able to hit the notes anymore? Can that guy play? And then, so that, that just motivates me, man. I'm just like, that's why I'm taking singing lessons. I don't want to be the guy that, that, that someone pays their hard earned money to come and see my concert and they walk out of there going, Oh, geez. Cause you, know, you hear about it. You hear people go, Oh, I went and saw so and so and that guy stunk. You know, he looked like hell and he couldn't sing. And I don't, I never want to be, I will, I will stop. I will stay home before I let that happen. All right. Before we go, Kevin, I, I will tell you a quick story. But from from the from the BMP, when when my wife and I first got there, it was uh, in the 
just in the, around dinner time, and there was a we heard music, and I I, I could tell it was live music playing. So we kind of walked, and we're just kind of, she just she'd been there before. She's showing me the the setup and everything, and she goes, "Wait, is that is that McEnroe?" And I'm like, "No, that couldn't be McEnroe." We get a little closer, and here, silver hair from a distance, playing guitar left handed. I'm like, "That is freaking McEnroe!" I couldn't believe it. So, so we walked over and, and we, we just listened for a while, hung out, had a glass of wine and, and, uh, the people were kind of crowded around him and I didn't want to bug him. So he, when he finished, he left, but I bumped into his drummer and I, I pulled the guy, I introduced myself. I'm like, just, can you get a message to John for me? I go, just tell him that I just listened to him, uh, sing for a half an hour. So he owes me a half an hour of watching me play tennis. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. brilliant. Great brilliant. stuff. This has been such, I know I'm speaking for Matt's and myself and all of Tennis Channel. They're all so excited. All of our listeners, this has been the biggest treat to do this podcast today. And on our way out, I'm going to let you put your money where your mouth is. And maybe you can just get, treat us to a couple of bars of time for me to fly. And then we'll bump out with that. Just, you know, if you want to just sing the opening real quick, we would love to hear. We can just say we had Kevin Cronin do Time for Me to Fly live on our show. You don't have to do the whole thing, but just let's, you know. I just happen to have a little guitar here. I don't know uh, for a fact whether or not it's in tune. Well, our listeners, we would have no idea. Yeah, yeah, they're not in key. Trust me. (laughs) Let's see. not in tune I've been around for you been up and down for you but I just can't get any relief I've swallowed my pride for you lived in light for you you still make me feel like a thief you got me stealing your love away Cause you never give it Peeling my ears away And we can't relive it well, I make you laugh And you make me cry I believe it's time for me to fly Time for me to fly